Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist, and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, I'm at the Writers of the Future workshop, and here I'm talking with the coordinating judge and... We met several years ago at DragonCon and became immediately good friends with her and her husband, Bill. So we're going to get right into this thing. Welcome, Jody Lynn Nye. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So um, I have this thing envisioned in my mind how we're going to take this interview here because there's so many things I want to talk about and go over. So first of all, your beginnings as a writer, and um, were you born with a bug or did it kind of grow and then all of a sudden you became like I have to write once you hit high school or something like that. So how how'd your your beginnings? My beginnings go from early childhood. I started telling stories to my younger brother and of course my mother ended up listening to a lot of these things while I was little. I I had a wild imagination and I had to tell the stories that I came up with to people. Started with my brothers went on to my cousins, and when I was a junior counselor, or even when I was at sleepaway camp, I was telling stories to the kids after lights out because we didn't have any televisions, you know, bar- yeah. barely had any books uh, access, but I told them stories. I came up with serials that, that <laughs> I added to after, night after night. So that was, that was a lot of fun, and it kept people happy. It kept me happy. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I, started, I started writing things for myself early on, uh, my best friend used to say that when we were driving around in my little Volkswagen, that she could reach in the back seat and find something to read. Because I, at the time, I don't know, it was an affectation. I was writing on graph paper. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and when I when I filled up a notebook or when I got finished with one, I'd heave it in the back seat, buy another one. So there are out there someplace old manuscripts of mine of stories that I came up with, and I am sure they're just as bad as any of their juvenile writer. <laughs> 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 but I couldn't stop. A writer has to write. Sure, sure. Well, that's that seems to be pretty universal when I when I talk to the writers that are like established that you got to write. Mm-hmm. A writer has to write. Do you have a, Do you have any particular? Um, we'll get. I'm realize I'm already digressing here because the questions keep on popping up. But do you have any particular opinion on how many words you have to th- be willing to throw away before you can get yourself an established voice? Mm. You will probably in the beginning echo somebody you have read. And sometimes it will be deliberate. You'll like that voice. You'll, you'll try to follow it. But sooner or later, you'll find yourself speaking in a way that were, makes sense to you. My brother always said that he could tell that I had written something because it sounded like me. So it must have happened fairly early on. Mm-hmm. And just like a friend of mine, uh, Phil Folio, who is a wonderful artist, his early art still looks like his art of today, except that the style has matured. It's just, it's his style. Mm-hmm. So I imagine then that my style of writing is my style, and it's it's always been there in the egg and then finally hatching out. Okay. So now you went from writing in um, on graph paper, and at some point you graduated to being a published author. So how did that happen? How did that transition occur? Oh, boy. Well, I got a typewriter when I was uh, 13 because my beloved English teacher of the time, uh, language arts, as they called it at Gemini Junior High, I have terrible handwriting. I have always had terrible handwriting. So he would write at the top of my papers, A plus, learn to type. (laughs) 
<laughs> so over the summer, I took a typing class, and my birthday present that year was a manual typewriter. And that helped a lot. It also made it much easier for me to, to write stories because it was faster. I'm a pretty fast typist. So I began to find outlets for the creativity. I wrote a whole 12 uh, fan stories. A lot of people get their beginning writing fan stories. Some people never stop. That's, that works for them. Mm-hmm. I wrote a few. But I was uh, also writing in a series that was sort of left to me by uh, another creative writer in the Society for Creative Anachronism. He had started it for with the Kingdom newsletter in the Middle Kingdom, which is the Chicago area of the Midwest, and just had fun coming up with humorous situations. I write mostly humor. People, mm-hmm. people recognize that. So when I was 19, I got into Johnson's and Dragons. In fact, my whole life changed at a party one evening when I met pretty much all of my future. I met the person whose D&D group I would join. I met the person who would take me to my first SCA event uh, where I would meet one of my very best friends who is still a best friend today, who eventually introduced me to my husband and a man who was giving up a job at a small publishing house as a matter of fact, a small religious publishing house, the Baha'i Publishing Trust, because he was moving on to a computer programming job. He was moving away from the Singer computing machine that they were shortly replacing with a PC, and they needed someone to operate the Singer machine while they were bringing on a programmer for the PC. So, as I said, that that brought me to where I, the Baha'i Publishing Trust had three members who were going to found a television station in Chicago. And I talked to them about getting a job there, worked worked there for four years. All the time I was also writing things independently. Mm-hmm. I was writing technical articles because, because I was working for a nascent television station. Someone from a magazine called Video Action approached me and asked me to write technical articles about some of the cutting edge technology that we were using at the magazine. So at the television station for the magazine, and my friend Barbara, who was the person I met at the SCA event, took me to my first science fiction convention, and I found the people that understood the geeky things that I loved that no one else, probably in my high school, unless there were a few, you know, Mm -hmm. I am pre-internet, actually knew about. So started to find the people that understood me started to see an outlet for the kind of writing that I wanted to do. And gradually, I ended up, since I was playing Dungeons & Dragons, I met my husband, who was the owner of a game company at the time, Mm -hmm. that was a a rival to TSR, the founders of D&D. And I started writing game materials for Mayfair Games, the company that he and his uh, partners had founded, which led to me writing Choose Your Own Adventures in a series called Crossroads for Tor Books, which led me to meet editors and publishers who said, yes, send me something. Let let me see an outline. What have you got in mind? Selling my first books. I was very, very fortunate. I met some really encouraging people who liked my ideas. And in, I'm going to say 1990, I've been writing short stories now also for publication, but in 1990, my first science fiction book and first uh, fantasy novel were published within a month of each other. I've wow. been writing short stories ever since. Uh, the total 
right now is about 55, 56 books and 175 short stories, plus various other things, articles. And I never say no to a project because if I don't know how to do it, I can ask somebody, I can learn, I learn fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to try things because I want to expand my horizons. I want to have fun with it. And if you say no to an opportunity, it may not come your way again. Yeah, that's true. How'd you end up working with Anne McCaffrey? I just, I adored her. She was such a lovely woman. Mm-hmm. She was a judge for the contest that's since right. year two. And um, how'd you end up working with her? That also came from Mayfair Games. They published the Dragon Riders of Pern game. And in fact, your son Todd had been an intern the year that they were working on the game for his mother. Mm-hmm. They hired Robin Wood to do the art for it. She did the People of Pern book mm-hmm. as well, all those beautiful portraits. And when Bill came up with this project called Crossroads, which are choose your own adventures in licensed worlds, he approached a lot of people and said, we would like to do a book that's a choose your own adventure that's set in the, wizard, the world of the wizard in spite of himself or Roger Zelazny's Amber, Christopher St- well, that is Christopher Stashev, the wizard, And he approached Anne and said, we'd love to do Pern books. And at the time she said, not while Judy Lynn Del Rey is alive. Because she promised Judy Lynn she would never publish with anyone else during Judy Lynn's lifetime. So we had to take that. I had already signed up to do a a book in Piers Anthony Zanth and one of the Christopher Stashef, Choose Your Own Adventures. And then Judy Lynn passed away. So Bill went back to Anne and said, what do you think? How do, you, how do you feel about that? And Anne said, okay. And I said, me, 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 me. <laughs> and Bill said, you have to give up at least one of the ones that you are planning to write in order to do the Pern one. I said, okay, but you take away Xantho from my dead body. <laughs> so I ended up two, doing two in the series out of, the, I think, 14 of Crossroads books. And no one else did more than one, but that's okay. Uh, in fact, Todd McCaffrey himself did one for one of Bill's other series, called Combat Command, which was choose your own adventures with troops, either starships or fighting companies or armies. So it was a really interesting introduction, but these were also game related. So I went directly from writing game materials to writing choose your own adventure books to writing novels. So I I had very fortunate. That's a nice progression. having, Having met Anne, I had to explain to her how choose your own adventures worked. So I wrote up an eight-page mock-up, with, and I gave her the map of how the sections fit together, and she thought that it was really interesting and, and, and fun, and we got along very well. And of course, Anne was very motherly. She took everybody in. She, she match-made a little bit with, with sure. various people. <laughs> and if she sort of adopted you as one of her kids, you were always one of her kids mm-hmm. then. So Todd has become my big brother over the years. And when Bill came up with another project for having writers expand series that they didn't have time to finish or work further on, but were also willing to work with young writers, he had done with David Drake and one with C.J. Cherry. Mm-hmm. And again, he approached Anne and said, what do you think of doing this? She knew about me already because I had worked on the Choose Your Own Adventures and also by that time, The Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern. 
So she said that I could be one of the people that worked with her on um, expansion novels for the Dinosaur Planet series. She chose Elizabeth Moon because she liked Elizabeth's work and a th third author who will remain nameless. <laughs> so uh, we began to work with her on that. We, we worked for, with Anne. Uh, she, she provided outlines. I did the, the first draft. She, it went back to her for her changes and, and input, came back to me. But her eyes were the last ones on it before it went into the publisher. Everything she said goes. Mm -hmm. So I had never had a problem with that. And I learned a lot from her. And, of course, she invited us to her home in Ireland. We spent 10 days there doing the Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern. And she said, people are going to be very jealous of you for having, uh, being able to do these things. And, and you're writing original Pern fiction. So what you need to tell them is, oh, that Anne McCaffrey, she's just awful. I, I'll never work with her again. Or you can tell them you're my daughter. <laughs> she was so generous, and if she liked an idea of mine more than something that she'd come up with, she would use it. And I felt really honored. Mm -hmm. No, she was um, quite, quite, the, quite the woman, and I remember she was with Algis, so incensed that she hadn't been invited to be a judge at the very beginning, you know. Um, she was quite the champion for the, uh, the female author. Oh, yes. There is... No reason whatsoever that she should not have been asked in the beginning. I know, and she made the, <laughs> they made that abundantly clear. And minced no words. That's a fact. That's a fact. And she enjoyed her root beer. She loved getting her hires or whatever type of specialty root beers we got her. And we have many countless discussions about uh, our both our favorite spice of cinnamon and, and all of its virtues. Yes. Um, we used to smuggle root beer. Well, it wasn't so much smuggling because the Irish customs were extremely uh, laid back about it. We would bring her root beer syrup that she could mix with fizzy water to su supply her, her wants. It, yeah. It's funny the things you miss when you're in another country. And yeah. for her, hickory smoked bacon, and yes, we brought her some of that, and a lot of other things, but root beer. Right. <laughs> so... Um, I mean, it's amazing you worked with her. So you've done a lot of projects working with your peers or with, with other authors. And with Anne, she was, she was actually something very established, which probably helped give you quite an, a, a boost in your stature within the writing community. That's very true. But how much, um, so you've done working with doing uh, books in tandem and then with, an, with another author and then books on your own. Do you have a, a druther on that? I like working with other people. I, I suppose I prefer working by myself because then I don't have to accede to somebody else's ideas. On the other hand, when I am working with someone, we bounce ideas off each other very quickly. I did many books with Robert Asprin, including one that was not a Myth Adventures book. And the two of us always had so much fun bouncing ideas off each other that getting together to do that was as much fun as the writing. Mm -hmm. He was a tremendously fun person. In, Intensely creative, a wonderful natural storyteller. Sometimes wrenching work out of him was not so easy, but anything you did get was gold. Working with Anne, of course, it was she. She was boss. I was minion. I'm fine with that. With Bob, it was much more of a peer relationship. Mm -hmm. Although he did give me the "I have got a rep to protect" talk once, and I thought, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> But his, uh, his readers at first rebelled against having me working with him. 
they wanted they wanted more myth adventures, but they didn't want anybody else involved. And I said, look, <laughs> either you get ones written with me because Bob asked me to come in, or you get no more myth adventures. Which is it? I've since worked with other writers. Uh, Travis Taylor is one. He's a, an actual rocket scientist, mm -hmm. and he is a lot of fun. Very, very, very smart. Got a good sense of humor. And that was a peer relationship also. So I've, I've worked with or uh, failed to work with other authors. Uh, I had one unfortunately failed project because there was, uh, there was no meeting of minds. And it's too bad because we had such a good idea. Mm -hmm. And I started working with Mike Resnick, our, our beloved Mike, before uh, a couple of years before he passed away. So sooner or later, I'll, I'll end up working on that. I've got something going with Eric Flint, a, a sixteen thirty two novel, mm -hmm. and naturally, what he says goes. Sure, no it's problem his, with that whatsoever. Universe. Yeah, he is incredibly giving to the writing community. I think that he has given first published shot to sixty young authors. I think there have been at that many. No, he's he's amazing. He's he's also in the mindset too of what he got turning around and paying it, give it back, know, give yes. it back to to others. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to the. To the other question is, how much have mentors or that type of a thing of like giving back, how much did that have a, an effect or a play on your future, on your growth as an author? I have so much that I have been given that the only way I can do is to give back. I have been inspired by, I have been mentored by, I have been teased by, <laughs> because there's a lot of that going on. But also the encouragement, the camaraderie. I've always been a kind of a loner. I've, I'm pretty shy. I am an, a real honest-to-God introvert of the kind that if I tr go into a crowd and I'm forced to introduce myself, I feel physical pain. So having people reach out to me means a lot. Having people say that they like what I'm doing if I can give someone some advice the way that they gave me, that they were so free about giving me advice and encouragement, mm -hmm. I'm happy to do that. I want to do that. I, I teach the Writer's Workshop at DragonCon every year. This will be year 12. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it's been that long. It feels like it was last year. And now joining the Writers of the Future judges, it gives me an opportunity to work with more young, very promising young writers and I call them kids, even though I, we've had a couple who are older than me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also, there's, there's kind of a, a club of, of the judges. We, we know each other. I think that you had quite a huge number of my friends as judges before I ever joined. So You made it very easy to become one of the... Exactly, was, to step in. You were already a member. It was, I was the one that was lagging. And we... We picked up conversations that we'd started ages ago because that's just what happens. It's like being time travelers, you know. Oh, we met last in 2038. Oh, yeah. Did did you did you ever um, develop that that hybrid? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. So now, as as a judge, now that you've gone to um, being a, a judge, mm -hmm. um, like the story we've got right now from that's in the the book about ready release with the story from um, Frank Herbert's story on my. Best piece of advice, or I think that's the name of his, his article. And the very end of it, he talks about, you know, now when you get to the point where you're doing well, don't forget to turn around now and 
do it for somebody else, mm -hmm. you know? Sure. So how do you see, like, what Rise of Feet, what Owen Hubbard created in 1983 and is now 38 years strong this year, which is amazing in and of itself, you know, and getting stronger and stronger each year. Mm -hmm. How do you see the value, the benefit, or the impact on the community of science fiction itself? Like any other recognition for a young writer, it's a boost. I got a tremendous boost out of working with Anne McCaffrey. Mm -hmm. It kicked my career up many notches. The Writers of the Future contest gives them a recognition of, there are only 12 people this year who have received this honor, with maybe a published finalist here or there that also joins the cadre. But for them, it gives them something that they can say to a publisher that shows that they have written something excellent, that they have been successfully edited, which is no small thing when you talk to an editor. They have had the people, there's a, there's a kind of a joke that goes around that there are people that every semicolon is sacred. Do not touch my semicolons. Do not change my, my grammar in any way. And every time the editors have to deal with something like that, it's a nightmare. So to give these kids some of our experience, some of our grounding, helps them to be better professionals, helps them to interact with the community mm -hmm. in, at a higher level than they would than if they were just starting out in the slush pile. The, um, the interesting thing that I see right now is every other week or so, I'll see a, uh, a press release from some uh, writer with a book that really saying, I also won honorable mention in Writers of the Future. It's just grown so much. I mean, it's, it's every other week or so, I, I'll see that. So you got the honorable mention, you've got your semifinalist, the finalist, mm -hmm. and then obviously the winners there. Because there are that many people entering the contest right now. Mm -hmm. We have thousands every quarter now that, you know, they're entering right. the contest. So it's, it's seen more and more. And I've been in touch with various editors as well who have said that, yeah, they'll, they'll take somebody out of the slush pile if they see they're even honorable mention. They'll, they'll pull them ahead of, of others um, just because it's, if it's made it through this, you know, this group of, of people to say, okay, they're you know, they've got this level, then this worth taking a look at from them on their part there. Okay. Well, that, that also is a tremendous res responsibility because we don't want to put through anything to honorable mention that isn't worth reading. No, that's exactly the point. And because it's anonymous, there are no hurt feelings because I don't know who is sending these things to me. Mm -hmm. I only just found out who two of the writers were of stories that I have read Although I, I kind of knew one, because there's also now the Mike Resnick Award, which is given yeah. by Shahid Mahmood, who uh, publishes Galaxy's Edge magazine. And I, I judged a story that has been submitted for this year uh, to the writers of the future. So I already knew it was a good story. That's yeah. not a problem. The anonymity allows me to look at something and say, I have no idea about this writer. I can judge it on the merits alone. It's like blind auditions for Juilliard mm -hmm. or for any orchestra in the world. Say, I do not want to be affected by the person I see. I want to be affected by the work only because the work must stand by itself. That's right. And there's no other way for it to be successful. As I, I joke to my, write, my uh, writing students at DragonCon, unless you come free with every copy of your book, you can't explain something that isn't on the page. It must be there. Mm -hmm. 
It has to be there for them to understand. And I hope that we can provide the, the readers with something really terrific to read, something groundbreaking, something that, that just fills you with delight. And I've come across a few already. Mm -hmm. And provides the writer, if they are good enough, with an opportunity to be recognized on, on the greater market, on the, on the worldwide stage. That's great. Now, as a coordinating judge, mm -hmm. you have obviously much more license to affect the future of science fiction, at least the kind of science fiction that writers of future, um, science fiction and fantasy that writers of future mm -hmm. features. What, what's your vision for the future of science fiction and fantasy via writers of future? I want to look beyond the customs of today, right now, as best I can. I want to look at what is a really good idea, what I think is, is groundbreaking, is uh, thought-provoking, because science fiction, if nothing else, is the literature of, of ideas. Mm -hmm. What's more, I have always considered it to be the literature of hope, because I have always hated dystopian fiction, and especially end-of-the-world kind of fiction. For me, it, I prefer ones where I suspect that we are going to continue to exist as a species, and that we're going to go out into the stars, and that we're not going to, to fire all blasters at the first sign of life that we see. Yes, we're going to be scared. Yes, we're going to be at a disadvantage. We're going to worry whether or not that they mean to kill us and eat us, or if, if we're very unlucky, uh, eat us without killing us. Uh, <laughs> but like Star Trek, I, I see a lot of hope for the future. I want stories that make me smile, maybe even laugh out loud. Mm -hmm. I've, I've read a couple like that so far. And let me just say that as, as a writer of humor, I know that it does not get a lot of respect. People may love it, it may be their favorite thing ever, but they won't give it a vote because they think that if they're giving a vote to something, it should, it should be something significant, which means serious stories will always, always get more attention than, than humorous stories. But I think we need both. I think we need a break from the evening news. I think we need escapism as, as much as we can possibly get. I want to drag the reader into the visions that the writers have so that the writers are doing a service to their readers by giving them something to think about that will please them, that will fulfill wishes in their minds. If, if their dream is to fly, maybe we can put that into their minds with a story. If they want to change shape, if they have a dream of becoming great, mm -hmm. that maybe the characters can do it for them. There is so much about reading science fiction that allows us to step outside the person that we are. I heard Lois McMaster Bujold, who is a great of our field, give a talk many years ago to the American Booksellers Association, the American Library Association. Mm -hmm. And she was quoting a study that said that there are two kinds of readers. There are type A readers who read things about people like themselves and situations that could actually happen to them in the real world, and type B readers who read anything else just absolutely anything else. And librarians have found that type B readers read seven to 10 times more books than type A readers. Wow. So our market is small compared with say romances or mainstream fiction, but we have dedicated readers who read lots and lots of it. 
because they want those ideas. So this is an opportunity to share the readers, the, the writers who do this kind of thing, who do a really good job of it, with the readers who are eager to, to find it. That's great. That's, I'm really looking forward to uh, you meeting our keynote speaker, because he's the one that helped create and set up the Space Force. Mm -hmm. He was in charge of acquisitions, which are all the things to put in place in order to have Space Force. Mm -hmm. And he himself... Can I get to ride on the shuttle? <laughs> exactly. He's, um, he's very well read in science fiction. Good. And um, he's going to talk about it. Like it's, science fiction is that inspiration. It's that what if and... Because like, one of his favorite Ron Hubbard books is The Battlefield Earth. And so he really liked that thing. It's the herald of possibility that he and other engineers reading science fiction are like, oh, how can I do that? That's really cool. And he said he needs science fiction writers to vision, to envision different ways, different outcomes. Because you can, as an engineer, think, okay, you're down this one path doing this one thing here. But it might totally miss the mark a lot. So you need other views coming in, describing something, different aspects of it. That all of a sudden, I didn't even think of that. And then all of a sudden, they account for that. And now you've got something that would not have otherwise occurred or may have taken an extra 50 years or 100 years or in the sake of what he was doing with the United States Space Force could have been conceived by someone else, mm -hmm. hostile to our intentions and created a problem. Science fiction is an incubator for ideas. Yeah. When we find out about a scientific advance, you watch. It will turn up in science fiction, but it will extrapolate forward in some way that say, either here's what we see could possibly go terribly wrong, or here's where we could see it could be tweaked and become even more effective, more interesting, and perhaps even new uses for technology that the original scientists didn't envision. Mm -hmm. So science fiction feeds scientists who are, many of them are really great readers, read, read science fiction. And, and of course, I know scientists who write science fiction as mm -hmm. well, quite a number of them. And many of them work for NASA. And then when they take our ideas into account and they start to develop them, then that gives us more science to read, to write stories about. So we climb on each other's shoulders in an endless loop. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, because the fact is that science fiction can and has changed the world, so I want to see ideas go forward. Now, that's purely science fiction. Fantasy is different. Mm -hmm. Fantasy also has a very important place. But for the general who has uh, got the Space Force going, there's lots of science fiction that is going to be able to give him ideas to go into the, the think tanks. Mm-hmm. And that they'll say, okay, this person had a very interesting approach. Maybe we should talk to them too. What, yeah. do, what do they know? Why do they think what they think? Yeah, there was that thing in pre-World War II when the uh, science fiction authors were approached by the military for different ideas and concepts that mm -hmm. they used for creating you know, new technology. Like what, how do you envision so they can then quickly figure out, try to figure out something that he could do as the next step to give us the edge over, mm -hmm. you know, what we consider was the enemy. So now on fantasy, how do you see that? So we've got the science fiction with you as a coordinating judge. Now fantasy, I, mean, I love your mythology 101. Um, that you. was so much fun reading that story there. And it is, it's just like, it's just entertainment. You go out there and you're just, mm -hmm. you know, you're... There's three more if you haven't read them yet. Okay, good. <laughs> well... <laughs> 
Um, so what's your take your view? Obviously, you're very accomplished as a, as a fantasy author, mm -hmm. but what you're looking for in fantasy? I would like not to see the same old thing. I know that my predecessor, David Farland of, of uh, Cherished Memory, hated werewolf stories. He didn't want to see any more werewolf stories. And the trouble with werewolf stories, vampire stories, anything that has become a trope, angel stories, things, things of that ilk, is that they have acquired a common vocabulary, which means it's almost like writing a fan story. You are following in the footsteps of somebody who has established the norm. Mm -hmm. I want to see something new. I want to see something that is out of your own head. I want something that, again, delights the reader, that is wish fulfillment. Fantasy is great for that. And I'm sorry I'm seeing so many incredibly negative stories, some of them, and, and these are getting the heave-ho, are, are too violent for the market. They're too violent for the writers of the future. Mm -hmm. Fantasy is also an escape for, for anybody. If you want to be a wizard, if you want to be, it's the same reason I play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> You get to be, for, for that brief period of time, one of the characters in the book, somebody that you can envision yourself taking, taking on that role. And to open out fantasy more than science fiction to views from other cultures, to looking at mythology, legends from other lands other than uh, Northwestern Europe. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to see more voices coming into the stories because every time I read a fairy tale or a legend or something from, from another country, I am sorry I didn't see it sooner. When I was at in grade school, I came across a book in the school library that was uh, fairy tale well, not fairy tales, but myths from around the world, where I found Anansi the trickster spider from Africa and the Cocopelli and quite a number of things that I had never come across in the fairy tales that I was told, which were mostly based around Norse mythology, Greek mythology, Roman gods, and so on, mm -hmm. a little bit of Egypt, and nowhere else. So I want to see more. Right. Let's open up the voices. At the Nebula Awards some years ago, I received a book called The Sea is Ours, but it was S-E-A, all in capital letters. It stood for Southeast Asia. And they were steampunk stories that were set far away from Great Britain, which is what everyone thinks of as being the, the seat of, of steampunk. But it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. So I want to see more voices. I want to hear great characters. And I want to present them to the readers because they'll be delighted to see something new. That's great. Because there's, I guess, somebody who's not that well-read or is only steeped in... Hollywood science fiction has an idea that science fiction has a genesis of your, you know, either the, your Norse mythology or um, DC or Marvel, <laughs> you know, um, and the whole idea of, of African mythology, the um, Middle Eastern mythology, all these other things mm -hmm. um, of science, excuse me, just not mythology, but of science fiction is also a very legitimate root of the genre. Oh, yes. You know, so it's, I mean, with, with Nadia Korfor, you know, she's got the South African 
science fiction and fantasy is it, both. She does mm-hmm. both science fiction as well as fantasy, but it's it's a different lineage. Yet it's just as much science fiction as mm-hmm. you know your um what your E. E. Doc Smith and you know, the Pulp Fiction time period there. Oh, absolutely, and and it's a different cultural view. Science is science. Mm-hmm. A scientific right. principle is going to work the same way anywhere. Right. It's what you do with it, what the culture will accept, what the culture will encourage and pay for. So I love to see that. Uh, the The story of her book, uh, Lagoon, is if aliens landed in Lagos, in Nigeria, instead of in a Western country, and what would happen from there. So I, yeah, absolutely. I want to see more of more of other voices, other ideas. The first year that I was a judge, we had a very unusual story from the Philippines, Philippine mythology. Mm -hmm. And it was just a wonderful thing to read. It was very refreshing. So So everybody listening to this, listen to what she just said. Listen her, listen her. She wants (laughs) diversity. I want want diversity. I want good stories. Right. And if you happen to come from a culture that that you want to uh, give us an idea of, if you want to open that door, Please do open that treasure chest. Give us the stories that your your family has told each other for generations. Yes, if you can write science fiction from the point of view of of your country's lens on it. Oh, I want to see that. Give me something different. Don't 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 give me the same old thing. Give me something interesting. Dazzle me. Okay, good. Absolutely. I think that's really important that people understand that because as with the podcast, we're reaching 120 to 140 countries now per episode. So if you're listening to this from wherever you are on the planet, this is for you. You know, this contest is not just for someone who speaks English in North America. This is for anyone. You have to write in English. If you're an illustrator, it doesn't matter on that. But if you're an author, it doesn't matter what you're where you are from submitting your story, it's, it's free to everybody to enter. And because we went online submissions, you don't have to worry about postage like it used to be in, uh, in the earlier days of the contest, which restricted people being able to submit. But um, it's just open to everybody who's an amateur writer. And it's so cool seeing this, you know, all these different stories because it also adds the interest level of the book itself too to just – get new perspectives, and you're talking about escapist um, literature, it is, it's great to be able to escape into other worlds, under other universes, and when a well-written story is going to be able to do that and to be able to get a different perspective, a different land, different people, different, you know, a different way of looking at life, but yet, like you said, from that positive view on it, and maybe sometimes how we don't want things to go. So this is going to happen if you don't do it right. You know, that's, that's a legitimate thing. But it's got to happen. we got that little uptick no matter what happens in our stories. There's got to be that uptick at the end. Well, there has to be a reason for the, the reader to keep reading. Mm-hmm. You don't have, I don't have to like your protagonist, but I must be desperately involved in that person's trajectory. I want to know. I, I want to feel compelled to follow that, that character. I don't have to see the character succeed. They learn something whether or not they do succeed. So a character, but I do need to see a beginning, middle, and ending. (laughs) And you have to understand that if you start out a story and you make a promise to the reader, you need to keep that promise. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So teaching the workshop and now as the, um, as the coordinating judge, what's, what's been your favorite part of the workshop week yourself as a judge? Seeing their eyes light up when they catch on to something. Now, they're already accomplished writers since they have won the contest, mm -hmm. which means they've been chosen over thousands of right. other people. But they've still got a lot to learn. And when something pings and you can see their eyes light up and they say, oh, oh, okay, that's something. And when I give them a piece of advice that I've been giving to my other students and they scribble it down, I, I, I have touched you. I have, I have gotten through to you. And I'm giving you the benefit of my experience as I was given to so many times over so many years. So I, I enjoy that. Yeah. I was, I've been told by other teachers that the student, there, maybe there's only one per class, but the student that gets the subjects is the one that you continue to meet their eyes, the one that you continue to interact with, because the others might be in there because they see it's an easy A. Mind you, it's not. Right. They can still do something really, really poor. Uh, or not not complete right. assignments, but teachers live for those students who get it and participate, even if they are only participating with their the gaze with their eyes. And I love that. I like th that interaction. So th this is a very receptive group. Yeah, that's great. And one thing I find really fascinating, but yet so true, and it's so great that it happens because of. We have such a smorgasbord of authors teaching and even seeing just you and Tim up there, mm -hmm. you know, getting ready, you know, pulling out the joust, jousting there. To <laughs> we were having, we were having a, a uh, philosophical battle there at the end and that was, and that was fun, but it also gave them good reasons for both sides of the argument. Yeah. Which is true, because there's not like, this is how you write science fiction. This is why you need to go to conventions. Mm -hmm. This is why you need to do social media. This is why you need to do, you know, never do first person present tense. You know, never do. It's like, you have so many different perspectives there. And, and yeah, I did that one there. And this is what happened here. And I, I failed miserably. But you have such a, an ability for someone to be able to choose and pick mm -hmm. and what works for them and that that somebody thought that they've got this earlier date. I'm like, don't do this. I'll be saying, yeah, you should give it a shot once. And like, what? It's, you can see sometimes their brain gets like, mm -hmm. you know, torqued. Absolutely. I want to tell the writers out there, never let somebody tell you what to write. If they say, oh, you can't write that because, pay no attention. Don't show it to them. Yeah. Show, it, show it to somebody who will appreciate it. And there are going to be stories that you will just keep to yourself. But if you get them out of you, it'll make room for other stories to percolate. But don't let somebody say, oh, you can't do that because of, of reasons. Like, you don't belong to that social group, so how could you possibly know? You know, people said that about Shakespeare. There, there are still people who think that Shakespeare's plays were written by a nobleman. Why? They, Shakespeare did the same thing that we're doing today. We talk to scientists. I'm not a scientist. We talk to aristocrats. We talk to grocers. We talk to bankers. I'm none of those. And that's fine because we research. Mm -hmm. If you have an idea, if you really want to explore something, explore it. That's what science fiction is for. Like I said, it's the literature of ideas and the literature of hope. So what 
tickles you? What is something that you've always wanted to try and, and look into? And if you want to, send it in. If it isn't good enough, well, it'll get rejected. If it is good enough, it may find a market. Mm -hmm. But write what, write what you want and find where it's going later. Good. That makes good sense in that. And in terms of what you're saying about rejection, too, Dave talked about, you mentioned uh, werewolf stories they didn't like, but the one year he bought one, which is a real fun story that, you know, that was written, there were three stories that were all in the final bin to be chosen from, so he was only able to take one. So a little bit about what they're up against, too. It might not even be that's a bad story. It's just that we're not going to have three werewolf stories in a book. Mm -hmm. We can only take one of any kind because it's not a werewolf anthology. It's not a dystopia anthology. Mm -hmm. It's not a high fantasy anthology. It's a variety. So in the end, every story in the book is going to be different. It's going to be from a different subgenre. It's going to be a different point of view. I only have room for so many to put forward. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the anthology is going to be. Some of the, the finalists who are not chosen to be a winner, who are not in, in the book, may end up as published finalists in future volumes. And that's, that's an option. Mm -hmm. But we're only going to publish the best of the best. And we will say to you, with our blessings, it's good. But it was one of six stories about knights and dragons that we got this year. <laughs> so please send it somewhere else uh, and send us, send us something else. Especially if we like your style, we want to see it again. We want to see more from you. Keep on submitting until you win or until you become a pro in your own right. That's the only two criteria that will keep you from uh, becoming a Writers of the Future winner. Yeah, so that's, that's I think, really important is that keep on writing, keep on submitting, and to automatically assume because you didn't win that you're bad. And when you get close, to, uh, when you get to the top, you're going to get the critiques that you're going to send to them as the, as the coordinating judge, you know, the top, you know, ones that didn't, that were finalists but didn't make the final cut there, you're going to, you know. Yeah, the semifinalists, yeah. the semifinalists who are not sent out to the, the other judges to assess get a, a short critique from me. I've already done several for the, the quarter that uh, Dave Farland was not able to complete. And they're good stories. Mm -hmm. They may lack a certain something, or they may be, like, like we said, one too many of, of a certain kind. But they're good enough that we considered them for a finalist slot, which means they could probably be sent to a magazine tomorrow. And you should look. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that was um, Robert Sawyer. He was entering the contest at, as a as a young pup, and Al just gave him a. He said it was a three page critique of a short story he'd submitted on how to turn it into a novel, which he did, and that became then a novel that he sold and disqualified him for the contest. But it's, it's it was really valuable getting that that critique from uh, from AJ mm -hmm. on this thing here. I've already heard from one of the semifinalists I sent a critique to, and mm -hmm. he said, thank you, I, I'm going to incorporate your comments, and that's good, because I already knew this writer, and I like him. And I had, of course, no idea that it came from him. I didn't choose the story, Dave Farland did, mm -hmm. but I was very pleased to see that he had made it to semifinalist. 
I think this guy has a lot of promise. I want to see a winner from him another time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's important that people, and that's what we really try to do either with this podcast, on the blog, on the forum, definitely on the website and social media is that encouragement, just like, don't give up, don't quit, keep going. Because there's a lot of reasons out there that people will give you to to quit and to give up and to not proceed and, you know, don't bother. And um, that's just, it's not what we are about. Oh, yeah. Don't let someone tell you what to write and don't tell you, let someone tell you what not to write. If you have a dream, if you want to be a writer, then write. If you can't stop yourself putting stories down and writing it on graph paper and throwing it in the backseat of your Volkswagen. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> if you have secret stories that you think are good enough to send in, no one will ever know it came from you until you are a winner. Yeah. So you can keep trying things and there's no pressure and there's no public humiliation. Send us something. Yeah. And it's I mean, this is great that you say this, and it's amazing how many people still are like all, you know, reserved about sending it in. Like, I don't want somebody to. Well, let, what let, do me, think's let gonna me rip my guts out and show them to you. <laughs> Anyone who says that the, the that their work is not uh, that they don't have any any emotional in, in involvement with their work is lying. They may be lying to themselves too, but they're they're telling you a fib. Yes, of course they are involved. Yes, of course, it means something to them to have somebody give them a critique. Mm -hmm. We want to give an add a being. We're, we're starting to use that term. Yeah. <laughs> add a boy, add a girl, add a being. To the people who have given us something that shows promise but hasn't made it there yet. And that should encourage you to send us something else. Yeah. As, as I had been told uh, when I was a young writer and as other writers have been told, Send us something else. Keep trying. You'll never get published if you don't submit. And it costs nothing to submit. That's right. There's no, there, we're, we're taking away every possible barrier there is to submission. It's sent in by email. It's anonymous. You can submit four times a year. It's free. What else do we need to do to get you to send us stories? Yeah. So please. And, it's, and there's just amazing stories of like, um, Joe Black was entered the contest, and he was a. Uh, he said he was uh, an honorable mention in Rise of Future. Brandon mm -hmm. Sanderson said that his honorable mention was one of the things that kept him prevented from quitting at the at the earlier mm -hmm. part of his uh, writing career. And every, sometimes I go to the library shows or book shows, and you'll see somebody, and they kind of go, "Oh yeah, you entered that contest," and it's like they're now very established, you know, mm -hmm. famous writers there. But it's just. It's just there to help and provide that vote of confidence for you to keep on going. And when you get that honorable mention, it is, you're a little bit cut above. It's like the top 10%. It doesn't mean you're, that you're ready to sell a book, but it does mean that you've got some potential that if you keep on working, the, the honing the trade, the craft rather, you're going to, you know, potentially have something that you can actually, mm -hmm. you know, do something with as an author. Well, look at how many of the judges are alumni of mm -hmm. the contest. That's right. And they're willing to tell you their experiences. Mm -hmm. They'll, they would like to encourage you to send in stories to, to try to, to join this group, to join the cadre. You have so many benefits for participating. You have so many benefits. You have access to 
a, a huge amount of, of wonderful literature. You have access to advice. Mm -hmm. And if you become a winner, you get this fantastic set of prizes. Yeah. A trip, a trip to Hollywood for a, a week-long seminar, uh, a, a, an honest-to-God black tie red carpet gala, a trophy that you can knock somebody's brains out with. <laughs> <laughs> and you get paid for your story. Not only that, it is almost never given to writers of short stories to get an illustration for their, their piece. And yet that is another really important prize for them, is seeing somebody else's vision of their work. When we have the great reveal, mm -hmm. which I know that you were talking about with Echo Chernik, who's the coordinating judge for the artists, they're, all of the pieces that are commissioned for every story are set up in a room. And then when everybody's standing against the walls waiting, they let in the writers. And it takes them milliseconds to recognize the piece that is meant for their story. I have seen the connection so fast. And it's always a delight. There's, there are, there's hesitation because they can't believe, oh, wait, that can't be meant for my story. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. It is for my story. Oh, I know it. I know it. And then they get to meet the artist who envisioned the, the, the mm -hmm. details of their story. And it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Right, it's just one of the, the highlights of the week and afterwards on the feedback when we serve everybody. So mm -hmm. we like to keep on working how to make it better. And it's like, that's just become such a major event for the week. They meet, that's when they really meet their illustrator. And I think you commented a little bit earlier about, you know, this, this is your group. This is your 2022. You know, this is your group here. This is class of 22. Yeah. They, they and, are... Um, they are not, from from now on. They they belong together. Yeah, yeah I was I interviewed Elizabeth Ween um, several weeks ago. She was a winner in Volume Three. Her book that she came out with a, a while ago, um, Codename Verity. It's not science fiction, but it was several weeks number one on the New York Times. Wow. And um, so she was in Volume Three, but that was I think it was Volume Three. But she was there with Sean Williams, Eric Flint, um, a few other. It was, a, it was an amazing class. And uh, so they were in, in touch. They, they kept on. It was their own little group. You know, they just stayed in touch. She's still in, in mm -hmm. touch, you know, 35 years later with, you know, half a dozen of the, the winners back then, mm -hmm. you know. And there's just it launched amazing careers. Yeah. It is good to have a group that they understand. It's like being old army buddies. They understand what you've been through. They were there. Mm -hmm. They're faces and, and voices that you can remember. And yes, and now that the internet exists, it's so much easier for them to keep in contact and say, hey, just wanted to let you know I sold a story. Or does anybody know <laughs> what it takes to get to be a, a professional bull rider? And yeah, I mean, any, any silly thing. Yeah. They become a resource. They might, you might reach out to someone and say, hey, you wrote a book about... Uh, chemical bonds, uh, who did you talk to, or are you a scientist? You answer some questions. You become a resource for each other. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing, too. And the writers and illustrators become resources for each other, too, because so many times we've had illustrators and writers connect up, not necessarily even the one that's, that they had in the story, but they meet somebody there, and they, now they've got somebody that can illustrate future books. They want to do a, a, a YA graphic novel, whatever it is, and mm -hmm. so then they, they team up. And now you've got some amazing partnerships that, that accrue from this as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You may love the piece that was done for you best, but you'll say, 
I need that for a project I'm working on. Can I talk to you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I felt so sorry for the kids last year. I call them kids, even though, we, like I said, we've had older ones, because not all of the artists or authors were there. Right. The, many of them could not come. Many of them could not get out of their own countries or into ours. But the ones who were there who were able to pair up, I think, had a wonderful time. They did. One thing that was good on that then is because of the internet, there was a lot of people did Zoom. So mm -hmm. here we are. And so somebody would Zoom in with the artist or the writer, you know, so they could actually see them. And they, they met the writer, the artist that was here. So that was, that was pretty touching too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, as I knew it would be, you know, so this is good. And um, I really wanted people to get a chance to, in a new unit of time, to meet you now as the coordinating judge. We did an interview mm -hmm. a while ago, now is from this new perspective, so they know, right. what is she looking for? They knew what Dave looked for, but now that, you know we're getting a better idea of like, mm -hmm. what's Jody looking for? Um, so I love your, your, your science fiction and your fantasy, you know, the mythology 101. It was just fun storytelling. You know, and it's you get a good chuckle on the stuff there, which yeah, is fun. You. It's it's really good, just to all of a sudden your woes can be put to you, know, you can table your woes for a little bit and just enjoy a good fun story. Well, thank you. Let me give them a couple of of quick things. I want a story that hits the ground running. Mm -hmm. I want a story that has a character I can root for, or one that maybe I don't like but I want to get involved with. I want a beginning, middle, and ending. And that's not always happening. <laughs> and I want to know that you really thought about your world. I want description. You don't have to go into every single leaf on the trees, but I want my character. I want to know where we are. Set us in time and space, get us involved, and have an ending that has something to do with where you started out from <laughs> in the beginning. But absolutely, give me something, submit every quarter. Good. And for somebody who's not familiar with your work, where do they go to find you? I have a brand new website at jodynye.com, J-O-D-Y-N-Y-E.com. I'm reviving jodylynnye.com. That's three N's and three Y's. I had to get the URL back. Mm -hmm. And I oh, am occasionally... I'm on Amazon. I'm on uh, Facebook. I hardly ever tweet. So uh, even though I have a Twitter account, don't send me a message there. If you if you have a question, Facebook. Facebook Messenger, message. yeah, very, very helpful. And check out where I'm going to be via my website. Jodynye.com. Jodynye.com, jodylynnye.com also. Talk to me at conventions. Uh, so if you need to send messages through the writers of the future to, to mm -hmm. uh, questions that you have. But if you have a specific question about how the contest works, Please get in touch with Writers of the Future. I'm still new at this. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we, that's, that's our bailiwick there. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jody, And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. 
Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And again, thank you very much, Jody. Thank you so much. <laughs>